0: Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are celebrating Spooktober with some eerie archaeology stories all month long. Yep, and I've even got my super spooky
1: voice on. Amber's been sick. I've been sick. But I'm back, and I'm ready for this. This is what's giving me life. Possibly, literally. So
0: we are sustained on
1: spook. (laughs) So to start us off, right, let's head over to Britain, where the origins of the holiday that we now celebrate as Halloween are thought to be found in Samhain, which is a holiday marking the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the
0: inevitable slide into winter, the darker half of the year. It's it's that holiday that's spelled Samhain, but it's it's not pronounced. No, I wasn't going to. That one was for (laughs) you. Make your Sam
1: Hain joke.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, I was just imagining a little dude in a cowboy hat going, Hi, I'm Sam Hain. That's all. Anyway, it's pronounced (laughs) (laughs) "Sowen." Join me, dear listener, as I take
1: Anna through a dark and stormy tale of archaeology most malign Mm -hmm. that begins more than 3,000 years ago on a blustery island of South Weisht in the Outer Hebrides, part of what is today Scotland. So it's... Weisht according to the man on Wikipedia, um, but it's also a pre-Gaelic word, so nobody knows what it means, and I bet we've all been saying it wrong. But before I get into the grisly details of what happened at South Wisht, let's build some tension by way of context. So, Anna, get contextualizing. Yes, ma'am. I will do that. Okay.
0: All right. Um,
1: I, assign- I assigned material for Anna to read. Yes. So that she was- wouldn't...
0: I was absolutely not allowed to look up anything having to do with Amber's actual story. I was only given peripheral things. So to that end, uh, let's travel back to Bronze Age, Britain, and uh, a case study of the Pompeii of Cambridgeshire in in the way that everything has to have an analog. This is the case study of Must Farm, which is... (laughs) It's it's the name of the place, but also... It, it's down the road from Can Farm. <laughs> Should Farm, and then just over the hill, Can Farm, and then by the river, it's Must Farm. So uh, it truly is by the river. It's by the River Cam, from which Cambridgeshire gets its name. Huh. Yeah, right? The bridge over the River Cam. The site has been described as the British Pompeii, but just in the sense of... Another town that just distor- got destroyed quickly and in a way that preserved lots of things. So otherwise, the two places aren't really very much alike. Pompeii was destroyed in a, a volcanic blast. Oh, did you see that new research that came out about the, the victims of Pompeii? No. Okay. It's <laughs> Did it's, you tweet it to me? Probably. It's super <laughs> spooky content, so I'm going to tell you just because it fits. But they did analysis about the temperatures that would cause charring visible on some of the human bones oh. and, and sort of the directionality of the bones. Yeah, it's not good. So, you know, warning to, to oh. people who are sensitive to extreme body damage here, skip ahead about 35 seconds. <laughs> but, uh, they determined that the heat blast that came off of Mount Vesuvius would have been enough to kill people by uh, making their body fluids boil.
1: So wow. they died
0: they died pretty instantaneously. So but it's, horrifically. so somebody opened the Ark of the Covenant pretty much. The the top blew off the Ark of the Covenant and a oh. heat blast came out that was so hot that people's brains melted and bubbled. So
1: okay. Well, actually this isn't as bad as I thought it would be. I thought that this was going to be about
0: like people suffering. No, I think it would have been pretty pretty quick. Okay. So um wow. That's probably sitting in your Twitter well, inbox th- for you. Okay. Well, that didn't happen at Must Farm. It sure didn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in this case, the town was uh, destroyed by fire, which is not much better. But um, Must Farm is believed to be the best preserved Bronze Age dwelling ever found in Britain. Um, so the houses were destroyed by a fire that caused the settlement, which was built on stilts by the river. So that's cool in itself. Um, sort of the Venice of the Bronze Age. Um but the fire caused the buildings to collapse into the shallow river beneath, and then the the soft river silt at the bottom sort of swallowed up the remains of the charred buildings and all of their contents. And so the the homes and the things that were in them survive in extraordinary detail. And so And then the river the river
1: has the river changed its course since then? And that's how we that they excavated it.
0: Yeah, I believe so. Okay, um, I think. But it they're is not just now. like
1: they're not excavating in the river, right?
0: They're not in the river, but they are in an area called the the Cambridge Fens, and a fen is sort of a it's like a peat bog, but it's specifically an alkaline environment. I mean, it's it's very much a spooky like the Fens and the Moors. They're very sort of mist shrouded, Jane Eyre type, gloomy places. You know, like the Hound right. of the Baskervilles is kind of in that right in yeah that okay zone. yeah i'm just building the spook here i am no that's okay <laughs> crafting an atmosphere amber that's for fine. your for your tale of horror let me build it play well, with me in this space
1: okay sure
0: so here's a quote from professor charles french from the division of archaeology the excellent preservation of the site is due to deposition in a waterlogged environment the exclusion of air and the lack of disturbance to the site The timber and artifacts fell into a partly infilled river channel where they were later buried by more than two meters of peat and silt. So um, not only are they not exposed to oxygen, but they were charred on the surface uh, because of that fire. And so that charring actually helped to preserve a lot of the wood and other materials. So what is At Must Farm? So like I said, it's a series of um, small houses built on stilts. And so the site has revealed the largest collections in Britain of Bronze Age textiles, beads, domestic wooden artifacts, and those include buckets, platters, troughs, shafts, and handles, and domestic metalwork. So farming tools like axes, sickles, hammers, uh, and then things like spears, gouges, razors, knives, and awls. And it's also yielded a wide range of household items. So there are all of these um complete sets, which is really neat, you rarely get that, of of storage jars, cups and bowls, and some even have food residues still inside. Most of the pots are unbroken and they're made in the same style, which is really cool. We don't see that very often in in Bronze Age Britain where you have um, lots of things from evidently the same manufacturer. Basically what we get is this whole snapshot of life at Must Farm from how they got their food to how they cooked their food, what they ate. Uh, what they threw away, things that they built and things that they built with, so their tools. So in this case, it's not as much what we see usually in the archaeological record of things that have been discarded, but it's things that have been preserved in a sort of perfect snapshot of a day in the life. So it's always exciting when this happens, you know, if you can sort of separate yourself from tragedy and loss, uh, you know, the actual repercussions of this particular event. But Thousands of years later, what we get is, is very exciting to us in terms of recreating the, the story of the people who lived there. The textiles, that's really exciting. That's something that we don't usually get from that long ago. So um, textile production at Must Farm was actually uh, really advanced for, for the time and place. All textiles appear to have been made from plant fibers, so rather than from wool or other animal hair. The people at Must Farm used cultivated species, such as flax, as well as wild plants, such as nettle and even trees, so like the inner bark from trees, to obtain raw materials. And flax provided the finest fibers and was used to weave incredibly fine linen fabrics on a loom. So we know that this was loom weaving. Something I read said that the strands of linen that were used, sorry, the strands of flax that were used to make the linen were about the width of uh, a human hair. So this but, was delicate, delicate stuff. Um, so and then, can
1: you can you explain how flax becomes linen?
0: I think I can. So it's I believe it's the flax stalk. So flax is uh, a grass. I think it's a grassy yes. plant. And basically, what you do is you you beat it until the fibers of the plant separate, and then mm-hmm. you can refine those fibers and and spin them into into linen thread. And you can, you know, the more time that you spend in processing and and the more more skilled you are and the more experienced you are, you can produce very, very fine thread, which is what they did here. And they also uh, appear to have used other wild plants uh, for coarser fabrics made with a different technique known as twining. Another uh, very rare find from Must Farm includes two well-preserved Bronze Age tripartite wheels. So these attest to a world beyond the river because... (laughs) Not so easy to use wheels on a river, unless it's a, you know, a paddle wheel. But these weren't. These were cartwheels. Um, So there had to have been an ongoing relationship between the wetland settlement and adjacent dry land, people on dry land. So despite the site situation in a wetland, the majority of the surviving material speaks of an economy based on dry land. So that's interesting. These people were producing goods, uh, not just for themselves, but for trade elsewhere. (laughs) To the drier parts of the world. So what are tripartite (laughs) wheels? (laughs) So what are tripartite wheels? These are wooden cartwheels made of three wooden boards held together by two horizontal bracers that are secured with dovetail joints. These particular wheels were made of oak and had half-moon shaped dugouts on either side of it that were probably decorative elements, but also they had the bonus effect of decreasing the weight of the wheel. So in a watery environment, if you're trying to move a cart out of swampland, um, the less heavy the wheel, the less likely your, your cart load is to sink into the mud. The surface of these wheels are charred, but um, it's radiant charring. So it means that it wasn't directly in the flame, but it was nearby enough so Uh-oh. that the radiant heat caused the wood to char. And then here there was a section in the articles that I read called stuffication in the Bronze Ew. Age, which is a term I do not enjoy. But it's That's, this general idea of accumulating too much stuff. kind of a good stuff. way of
1: describe how I feel right now.
0: <laughs> Are you stufficated? I'm stufficating, yeah. Aww. Uh Well, in this sense, it means just sort of... What we think of kind of as a modern ailment is the accumulation of too much material stuff. But... Um, David Gibson, the archaeological manager at the Cambridge Archaeological Unit, uh, has said that this this picture of domestic activity uh, and this sort of um, complete set of dwellings and their contents is an indicator that quote suffocation is uh, may have been a much earlier problem than we'd ever imagined.
1: Well, just because like a lot of stuff was preserved.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I, like people always have had stuff. Yeah. It just, the farther back in time you go, the less likely a lot of it is to preserve. So we get an incomplete picture. But this is an instance where a few what? thousand years ago.
1: Oh, man. I hope, I really hope that this is like this guy misquoted. and Not like a. They're going all I this mean, stuff. I, like, like, just, no, no, no. It's like not, he's of, not,
0: no, he's not surprised that, that they have problem. all this stuff. No, no, no. He's just saying that seeing what, how people actually lived and having a much more complete picture means that. We do get this sense of continuity between between three thousand years ago and now, which is like you, you're surrounded throughout your life by your stuff.
1: So I don't see a problem with having stuff around you.
0: I mean, I'm all about
1: minimalism, but like, it's sort of like they got clothes, they got objects, they got things to sit on, they got things to eat. Yeah. Gosh, these guys are really materialistic. I I guess like, who are you? Who are you, sir, to decide how much stuff is too much stuff for these
0: people in the Bronze Age? They're just trying to live. Just trying to live their Bronze Age lives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 3000 years ago, what did people wear? So, yeah, since we got all this stuff, let's see what they see what it is. <laughs> well, some of the stuff is for them, some of it is not. So the community living in these roundhouses were making their own high-quality textiles like linen. And like I said, some of the woven linen fabrics are made with threads as thin as the diameter of a coarse human hair. Um, So textiles were common in the Bronze Age. Like, of course, people weren't walking around naked. And uh, we know they had textiles. Uh, Not everyone was dressed in animal fur all the time. Um, (laughs) But it's very rare for textiles to survive today. So it's really neat to see, um, especially the finer work that was coming out of Must Farm. What did these people eat? Wild animals, for one thing. Um, Wild animal remains were found in rubbish dumps outside the houses, and that shows that they were eating uh, things like wild boar, red deer, elk, and freshwater fish, such as pike. So inside the houses, the remains of young lambs and calves have been found, revealing a mixed diet. So they were agriculturalists, but also supplementing their food with, with wild game. Um, while it is common for late Bronze Age settlements to include farm animals, it's actually pretty rare to find wild animals being equally uh, represented in the diet. Uh, plants and cereals, not like Cap'n Crunch and whatever, but cereal <laughs> grains, were also an important part of the Bronze Age diet. And so we see the charred remains of things like porridge type grain foods, emmer wheat and barley grains. And uh, these grains sometimes were even found preserved inside the bowls they were served in.
1: Oh, man. Uh, so they're just like sitting down for breakfast. And then somebody and everything's like, on kicked fire. over the veal
0: that was cooking. So on to household goods. Each of the houses was fully equipped. Was Jeez, furnished house. guys. <laughs> Jealous, <laughs> much, <laughs> right? Uh, with pots of different sizes, wooden buckets and platters, metal tools. Things called saddle querns, which have nothing to do with saddles, except that they are shaped like saddles. It's a, a stone tool for grinding grain, and it yeah, happens to be saddle-shaped. Because
1: Use a quern for your corn. <laughs> a corn
0: quern, but they probably didn't have corn.
1: But corn is a general
0: term. It it's is. like the You can have a barley corn. It is a small, yeah. a, a, a little kernel of a grain. So um, Ceres is referred to as the
1: goddess of the corn even though there's no corn because people were using the word corn before they came to North America and we're like look at this corn because it was just a generic grain
0: calls maize.
1: Yeah, and so we call it corn because they're like well it's a corn, corn TBD. So it's like how you have poultry but chicken
0: and a poult so, is it is a young a young fowl.
1: Yeah, I think it's a young turkey
0: so, specifically.
1: That's my fun fact about corn
0: and also corned beef. It refers to the uh, the small chunks of salt that were used to prepare the beef. So it's corned; it's prepared with corns of salt. Huh? Yep. <laughs> uh, they also had weapons, uh, loom weights, and glass beads. So these finds suggest again a materialism. Boy, they are really harping on this materialism I and know, sophistication what? never before seen in a British Bronze Age settlement. So, <laughs> and the article again says even three thousand years ago people seemed to have a lot of stuff. Get off it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> leave them alone. Many of these objects are relatively pristine, suggesting that they had only been used for a short time before the settlement was engulfed by fire.
1: Because the settlement was relatively new or because they kept stuff in good working order and so they would, like,
0: replace it or swap it I didn't it out. get a sense of how long people had been living there, so... yeah, okay. I don't know. Keep in mind, this is a very small settlement, so it may have been like a seasonal thing or just a group of people starting to set up shop.
1: Yeah. Um, but
0: the, if they had yeah, time to... Yeah, moving in from the dry
1: lands, they parked <laughs> to there. To become the
0: swamp folk. No, well, I, you know, they had time to set up a flax, you know, a linen industry. I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, maybe they quit their big jobs in the Bronze Age city. Decided to downsize, come out, take up artisanal weaving.
0: Let's not disseminate misinformation and just (laughs) rampant speculation to our listeners. Don't listen to Amber. I mean, do listen to Amber. Oh,
1: you know, don't start listening to me for a couple minutes. Yeah,
0: it's still my turn. Yes. Um, so this was a really small settlement. So these were just only five houses so far have been found at the Must Farm settlement. And each one was built very closely together for a small community of people. So each house would have housed maybe six people. So 30 people-ish living here together. And every house, this was like a, uh, like a community housing project. Like every house seems to have been planned in the same way. With similar layouts within the house, so the area for storing meat, another area for cooking or preparing food. And these houses were, like I said, built on stilts above a small river, so a tributary of the Cam. And the conical roofs were built of long wooden rafters covered in turf, clay, and thatch. And then the floors and walls were made of wickerwork. And then that was all held in place by a wooden frame. And so the the wickerwork—it sounds drafty, but it would have been covered over. But it's sort of like a wattle and daub situation that it would built. Build like a a basketwork yeah. type frame for the house, and then plaster it over with kind of a muddy mixture of stuff that would then that sounds, uh, provide insulation. It's kind of nice. It's cozy. Yeah. Um, and then this was really cool. So, um, one more thing that was found at the Must Farm settlement were around eighteen pale green and turquoise glass beads. And analysis has shown that these were probably made in the Mediterranean Basin or the Middle East. So there was a trade network in place here for those to have wound up so far away from where they were made so that's really cool we don't know much about that yet but it does appear that (laughs) things were happening in the wetlands and probably because they were on a a waterway you know i I have no idea whether this trade was occurring over land or on the rivers but uh they were sort of ideally placed if if soggy it's very cool all right so there's my context.
1: They're great. No, that's excellent context. Okay, so now that we have something closer to a backdrop for what life at Cladholland Holland might have been like. Uh, let me give you all some more details about this site in particular. So as I mentioned up top, Clad Holland is on the island of South on the, it which is the second largest island of the Hebrides. So the Hebrides are the islands off the coast of, of Scotland. On On the larger islands, you have something called a mechir, which is a geographical term for the fertile, low-lying, grassy plains along the coast of Ireland and Scotland. And there's some um there's some thought that maybe the Mahir is is anthropogenic, that um it used to be woodland, but humans in the Neolithic cleared it. It's not quite grassland. It doesn't work quite like grassland because it's also kind of duney. Oh, okay. Um,
0: so this the sediment underneath is more Yeah, sandy. so it's like
1: right up against the coast. So it's right, like seeing okay. like like rolling plains but next to the water. It's it's a Ooh, sort of neat. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um and um did you ever go to the
0: Hebrides? I didn't. I spent a semester in Edinburgh and really didn't do very much travel outside of the city except for like the immediate environs like to go hiking.
1: Yeah, yeah, cause I have, um, uh, some friends who've gone, um, who've gone there either because they were in school there or they lived there, but the photos are gorgeous. Uh, but it looks like super blustery all the time. Um, and so back in the Bronze Age, there was some mahir grassland, but a lot of it was covered by what we call living dunes. Um, and so living dunes are the ones that can shift, that move. So as the wind blows, the dunes move. The whole um, thing. The whole thing moves. Uh, and it's like over time, it's a really incredible phenomenon. Uh, but it's like sand s- glaciers. Yeah. And so it's like all beautiful and, and eerie until it's like crawling up on your like field or your house. So it is a bit threatening because <laughs> it will yeah, slowly I'm- consume you. I'm getting, uh, like, a weird amount of
0: anxiety right now <laughs> listening yeah. to
1: this. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's so beautiful, but deadly. Right. Uh, and so, strangely enough, this, like, very dynamic landscape was the preferred habitat for farming communities throughout the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and the Viking period. And so here... like to challenge. Here, Yeah, seriously. And so here, the Bronze Age is understood to be around 2200 BCE to 800 BCE. The Iron Age from 800 BCE to 900 CE and the Viking period from 900 to 1300. So, CE. yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so there have been over 200 ancient settlements from these periods. So, I mean, that's a long time to find. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a little over like 3,000 years, but still 200 ancient settlements for a fairly small island. Um, and so they've been found on the just the Meher of South Southwisht. And sometimes they're visible as low mounds and identifiable by the shells, pottery, and bone found because there's bunnies all over. And so the rabbits will burrow, and as they're burrowing, they kick up material. (laughs) Uh, And so it's great that they like tip off archaeologists to evidence of these settlements, but they're also destroying the stratigraphy. (laughs) And so between 1989 and 2002, Two mounds were excavated there in Cloud
0: Holland, and this is where things start getting exciting. Okay, I'm gonna so. close the script here, so I can't see anything. Okay, I haven't—I okay. swear, listeners, I haven't read ahead. I have no <laughs> idea what's about to happen to me. I'm, I'm going to give you some of
1: kind of the archaeological narrative, but also take you through the archaeological excavation. So okay. we're gonna be we're gonna be doing some time warping here. Billy, Billy, yeah, Billy. stay with me. Okay, um, here we go. So around 1000 BCE, a terraced row of roundhouses was built. So we mentioned those roundhouses above when you were contextualizing. Um, <laughs> these were not these, built on
0: stilts, I imagine. No,
1: these were built on on dirt.
0: The dry lands.
1: At Cloud Holland, there also were these little U-shaped houses that were very much domestic spaces. But unlike those... These roundhouses in the terraced row, and so terracing is where you cut away, where you, like, cut and grade the earth, like, on a hillside mm-hmm. to make yep. it level. So it would it would be sort of, like, split level. You can imagine <laughs> that, like, split level roundhouses. Great. Um, yeah. Uh, so these were constructed in monumental form. So very thick walls of sand faced with stones and with floors sunken below ground. Each of these were about three times bigger than the U-shaped house, and they were built together as a terrace-sharing party walls. So since they were connected, the the roofs must have required vast quantities of long timbers. And remember, I said, like, this is sort of a grassland that... Oh, they yeah, they took away all the trees. Yeah, so it was probably driftwood. Um, oh. The timbers would have been drift timbers and they would have been lashed together with turf and reeds. And cool. it's unclear how many houses were in the row because only the northern three houses in the mound have been excavated and the edge of a fourth has been located. But the thing that's most interesting about these roundhouses isn't what happened in the houses, but under the houses. For for building the foundation of these houses, they dug out these Great circular holes. Cause remember the, they're like semi, semi subterranean. Before the, the pits for the roundhouses were dug, a line of closely spaced large pits was dug and then filled in along the east side on a northeast, southwest axis. So they, they and, dug
0: holes and then filled them in.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, mm. so they're like, we're going to build, we got to build this row of big old roundhouses. Let's dig some small holes and then fill them back in. And uh, those digging these pits appear to have used the summit of Ben Moore as a sight line to follow. Okay. Which I'm guessing that Ben Moore means
0: Ben Mountain. The Moore, thing is that Ben means hill as well. So I believe so it's it a means hill, hill hill. It's a hill hill. Oh, geez. Because Ben Nevis is also a mountain, right? So like Ben is a very typical – it's like mount. It's saying like mount something. Interesting. Hill Hill.
1: So they used the summit of Hill Hill as a sight line to follow. So whether there was that was just, there was some significance or they're just like that way. That's a big thing to look at. Yeah. <laughs> <Let's> do that. <laughs> just square it up. So these pits that had been dug were immediately filled in again with clean sand. One contained a pot and another had fragments of a human skull and cremated bones, but otherwise they were empty.
0: I mean that in itself is spooky.
1: Yeah, super spooky. And I don't so, like
0: prepared holes.
1: No sense of why these pits were dug. And okay. and also like um they were filled in shortly after being dug. Okay. And whether that's like in the same season or immediately, but I I don't know cuz I guess the way you you excavated it, it was like a really clean like clean lines right without the, time for for yeah. slumping to happen yeah, inside exactly. the holes. Um, and also if you've got a pot and then fragments of a human skull and cremated bones, was that even intentionally put in there? Or were you like, I'm done with lunch, toss it in and then do like some guy was really phoning it in on his like whole lunch, <laughs> yeah. lunch was a
0: cremated human
1: skull. <laughs> no, 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 and then like you're filling it in and like somebody happened to you know, foul play or something. But whatever. We're getting we're getting in the in the weeds here getting in the dunes uh, because the next stage was most dramatic the house interiors were dug out each to the depth where they occupied they encountered the tops of buried occupation layers from earlier centuries so they dug down to so they you know they did a great they did a great job of like dig until you hit something
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey archaeology
1: that school of (laughs) that school of excavation Now we're digging down to depth B, which is is even lower. They're digging pits. This is like pits on pits on pits here. But they're digging pits. They dug pits into the bottom of each foundation. Okay. So of of each house. So we've got like a minimum of three pits here that, that we've excavated. And into each of those went human skeletons. And in the northernmost house, there was also a skeleton of a sheep buried there. So here we go. <laughs> the next line that Sheffield says, which I'm quoting here, living on top of dead bodies might seem like a strange thing to do. I mean, OK, jeez. Well, <laughs> I mean, we kind of all are, if you think yeah. about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, each house was a dwelling. So it was it was designed as a domestic dwelling and it had a central fireplace and a peat floor, which sounds like a terrible idea. What's oh, it's dried. The peat oh, okay. is dried. So okay. it's just nice like and a, like spongy. A heavily, like, a highly flammable f- floor.
0: Oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's not like great.
1: No, like here's my this is my my fireplace. The floor is made of dryer lint, like that sort <laughs> of thing. But okay. yeah, fair enough. <laughs> there were differences among the houses. But it's, it's unclear whether each was inhabited by a family, which given the size, it would have been like an extended family with like multiple generations and sort of degrees of, of cousinage. Yeah, sure. Um, um, or maybe it was groups divided divided on the basis of age, gender, or social status. So it could be like parts of a community that lived in these houses. And so the middle house was the largest and the longest lived in. So eight successive floors were laid together with complete rebuildings over a 600-year period until its abandonment in about 400 BCE. The presumed inhabitants must have been um, pretty well off um, since there was a front porch. (laughs) That's how you um, know you made it. When the house was first rebuilt, so House B, uh, they made an offering on the floor of three bronze chisels, which did they or did they drop them? Unclear.
0: Right. Yeah. They made during an offering its, by going like,
1: ah, it's hot. <laughs> uh, during its fourth to fifth phase, they sacrificed two dogs and buried them under the floor with the cremated sheep. Oh. Yeah. So they're I mean, doing that a one, lot.
0: That one was on purpose, right? Like,
1: Yeah. Yeah, you didn't drop two dead dogs in the floor. Uh are like, oh, where'd that dog go? The North House was rebuilt twice, and thereafter, a series of flimsy buildings occupied the spot. A lot of judgy articles coming out about the British Bronze Age here.
0: The like, building was <laughs> flimsy. It was
1: flimsy. Um, and it was
0: full of too much stuff.
1: <laughs> too much stuff, flimsy, two stars. <laughs> Would not go back. Um, although it had a central fireplace, now we're talking about the North House. The North House had a central fireplace, but it was not an entirely normal dwelling. Before okay. construction of its third phase, a newborn baby was buried under the floor, and Oops. nine and nine post holes contained pieces of cremated human bone. And so post mm. holes are where you put like a timber or like a post, like for it's what it sounds like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like it sounds like. And so you use post holes to determine the, the kind of perimeter of of tent structures or more ephemeral sort of, architecture. yeah structures. Yep. To cap it all off, as if that weren't wild enough, there was a cremation pyre platform, so the actual place where bodies are burnt directly outside the door. Ooh. And so this has been termed the house of the dead. Um, And it seems to have been intimately linked with death and perhaps the people who lived here, whether part-time or permanently, were priestly or ritual specialists.
0: That was a funeral home.
1: It could be. The southern house. So I remember we're on the north house. Yep. So we we, we got a north house, house of dead. Yeah. North house, house of dead, cremation pyre outside. Real, real rundown later. Middle house, big. Great. Big, beautiful. South house was the smallest and poorest and also the shortest lived.
0: Okay.
1: After only one phase, it was abandoned. Unlike the bronze bracelet left on the floor of the north house or the chisels in the middle house, the only offerings here were two large stone chopping tools. After this house had filled with windblown sand, it was turned into a field for plowing and spade digging. I like the suggestion here that if they had given better, <laughs> better offerings, maybe it would have lasted longer. <laughs> um, remember when I said that there were skeletons buried in pits under each of these houses? Tell me about them, skeletons. Yeah, yeah. This is where it gets bonkers. I'm ready. Okay, so the middle house. What do we know about the middle house? It's big. Yep, it's big and really nice. It was and, the longest occupied. And lasted a long time. Yes. Okay, great. I'm Good. listening. Excellent. You're listening. No, I'm just, I'm just reinforcing points so that everyone can follow my amazing scary story. The middle house's human foundation deposit, which is a terrifying phrase itself.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So this human foundation deposit was the corpse of a young teenager, probably a girl. Mm. Uh, yeah. But her body was placed in a crouched position on its right side. Like fetal position. Kind of the fetal position, yeah. Her fragile skeleton yielded no indication of how she had died. So more surprising than running into a young woman at the bottom of a foundation deposit in the middle one were three other skeletons, one in the south house and two under the north. And so under the south house was a child, an infant of about... Age to about three months old, but it had died about 300 to 200 years earlier. Wow. So earlier than when it was buried as a foundation deposit. Oh. Um, its bones were no longer joined together except for the spine and pelvis, and they helpfully say that it had no doubt rotted long before it was buried. So, so it,
0: they were in the process of building a house, and they dug up a dead baby and buried it again in the foundation of that house.
1: Possibly. They definitely didn't... That that was not a newly dead baby when they put it there. Okay. Um, and so that's under the south house. So we got south house, baby. Middle house, teen. North house, grown-ups. So the two burials oh. under the north house were both adults and had similarly died centuries before.
0: Wow, this is so, weird.
1: Yeah. One was male... And one was female. Uh, uh-huh. The female was aged about forty, and her crouched body appears to have been tightly wrapped for the three hundred years during which it was kept before burial. The excavators remarked that they looked like mummies from Peru. Yeah, like, you know how the mummies are are like really they're tightly like flexed, sitting. Yeah, and like they're they're they've got their knees drawn to their chests, mm-hmm. uh, so it's it flexed like that. Sometime after her death. So sometime between death and burial as a foundation deposit, her upper lateral incisors, so the two teeth next to her front teeth, were removed and placed in each hand. Uh, And I'll tell you about the other guy more in a minute. Um, so what no, was wait, strange? Wait know Shut up. What was strange to excavators about these burials was how intact and highly flexed the bodies were, just like the mummies found in Peru. And they were like, "OMFG, did we just find mummies?" Did they? Yeah, yeah, they found mummies. Ooh. They they found like first ever mummies in Britain. But, like they realized they had to have found mummies because the only way that these skeletons could have maintained their form over so many centuries, especially if they're just like hanging out, not being buried. Or not being buried there, unclear, as if the connective tissue had remained intact. Because right your in. bones stay together by, by ligaments. And so if you preserve the stuff around the bones, the bones stay there. So this site, Clad, Clad Holland is like contemporaneous with the reign, of, roughly contemporaneous with the reign of King Tutankhamun. I'm not saying that they're at all connected, but just think about like where you are in different parts of the world. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, like, that we've got this, like, super well-understood, well-documented, like, art and science of mummification happening in Egypt. And then over here in, like, in the Hebrides, you've got these Bronze Age Bretons being like, well, we got to preserve this, but how? And so this is a local innovation. They fig- they had a need, and that need was to keep dead people around, and they they met that need. And so they were like, okay, well, it seems like maybe, so we've got, you know, clue one that we've got mummies. They look like mummies. <laughs> and like, and then clue two came with looking at gut bacteria. After death, the bacteria in your tummy starts, just like keeps eating working. It's so it starts eating you. It changes this, the texture, the surface of the bone, and then further down by riddling it with tiny holes. Because you got tiny little bacteria, like chomp, 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 chomp on your bones.
0: You're, You're making can, this disturbingly cute.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the degree, I love this. <laughs> the degree of bacterial damage can be tested to a pretty high degree, with a pretty high degree of accuracy, using a forensic procedure called mercury porous symmetry. You're measuring how porous it is. And so the results of this test on the bones of the mummy, the putative mummies from Claude Holland. Um, it showed the decay started, but ended abruptly. And so there are two ways that that would have happened. One, they would have removed. So the, the process is called evisceration, uh, but they would have. Oof. Yeah. So they they would have removed the thing giving the off the tummy bacteria, or they put them in a, an acidic environment. And what do we got around them that's acidic? Peat. Pete Boggs. Yeah. So that's why I had also asked you to look up Boggs. But then I remembered the rest of the story and was like, oh, never mind about that. So I sort of like threw you off. It was a red herring. It was a red herring. <laughs> so remember, first clue, looks like a mummy, highly articulated. Second clue, mm-hmm. um, minimal bacterial uh, damage to skeleton. Third mm-hmm. clue, which got it in the bag, is demineralization of the bone surface. When you put something in a bog, um, oh, this is giving me like flashbacks to when I was a kid and like weird science projects we did. So tell me if I remember correctly that. Quote
0: unquote science projects.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when something is bog mummified, like preserved mm-hmm. in a bog, it preserves the soft tissues because it's like an anaerobic environment so it can't it doesn't rot but the acidity demineralizes the bones and it makes them all rubbery that's right and so you stop so remember these
0: were straight up bones that they dug up was one of the experiments you did as a kid putting a chicken bone in vinegar yeah yeah i did that too yeah so i rescind my mocking you yeah. So if you do that, then you get like a rubber bone two days later and it's super funny.
1: Yeah. They did a final test looking at demineralization of the bone surface because the, the peat bog works from the outside in. They did an analysis and just the outer two millimeters of the bone had been demineralized, which means that depending on how strong this bog was, how acidic the bog was, they just kind of dipped it in the, the bog
0: for six to eighteen months, wow! They like they pick- cured it. They they pick- pickled them. Wait, so you mentioned two mummies, right? There was a you said the female with the crazy teeth in hand situation, yeah. which I don't like at all. Um, what about the the male mummy? Who was that guy?
1: I think you mean who were those guys? What the second mummy? What? W- was <laughs> the second mummy was a skeleton not of one person but of three <laughs>
0: no yeah ah. so,
1: <laughs> so, Amber, no so the head and neck not just head head and neck was from one man the mandible was from a second head, and the rest of the body knees and toes <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the body was from a third. <laughs> so this is this was the thing that I learned like a while back where I'm just like don't ever look up this site Anna cuz I'm going to tell you about it because it spooked me out. It chilled my very contiguous bones.
0: Did they have just like um most of one guy and they were like no, 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 no to flesh because this out.
1: no, because the head and jaw like the woman and the infant were about 300 to 400 years old before burial. But this the makes body no sense. but the body belonged to a man who had died 500 years before that. Okay. And they were like, what is going on? What's up like that is bonkers. What's up with this lady? Because Terry Brown, a professor of biomedical archaeology at the University of Manchester, said that um, there were clues that these bog bodies were more than they seemed, and he suspected that maybe the female was not just one person either because the jaw didn't fit into the rest of the skull. So is that why
0: she was carrying her own teeth.
1: Yeah, she was yeah, so the mandible For didn't later. fit on, and they were just like, "Hey, Mike Parker Pearson of Sheffield University, can you try to DNA test this? And how many um, people
0: is this person? I know Mike Parker if you're saying. That. No, 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 no. The mummy. Oh, oh, How many people yeah, so, is this person? Um, so
1: of these, we got these two mummies. These the male mummy, the two, and female mummy. Six yeah. individuals represented.
0: <laughs>
1: and so Brown
0: sample people.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Franken mummies. So Terry Brown sampled DNA from the female skeleton's jawbone, skull, arm, and leg. And the results show that bones came from different people, none of whom even shared the same mother, he said. These weren't people who were related to each other. It wasn't like this like, family amalgam or something. It was just like different parts of people. And so researchers proposed that perhaps, quote, the skeleton was reconstructed as a means of merging ancestries. This is just wild. Like, I don't know. The, so the female is made from body parts that date to around the same time period. At least three people would have had to have gone through the same process of partial bog preservation and then get stitched back together.
0: This is fascinating. And then,
1: um, so they're what around is the this same process? time period. But isotopic dating shows that the male mummy is made from people who died a few hundred years apart. Is this like ancestor worship kind of deal? Right. So we've got two mummies with a minimum of six individuals between them. Right. Plus the poorly preserved remains of a child in another house. Right. And the remains of a teenager in a third house. In I each case, that. someone died, was deposited in a peat bog for about a year for the explicit purpose of preserving them. Then they were fished back out and then presumably set up in the roundhouses for a few centuries. Because remember, they were, t- the woman was tightly lashed, like she was mm-hmm. tied up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these people, Like each of these were out for a few centuries before being reburied. So they were just kicking it in these houses upstairs. And then over this time, the man's head was replaced. And then eventually his (laughs) mandible was replaced.
0: It's so easy for those to get knocked off if you have rowdy kids.
1: Right. And then finally, they were all buried in the foundations. So my question to you, Anna, this is when you can open up your script. My question to you, Anna, is what the F is going on over at Clad Holland? And now you you go to page 8.
0: Yes, I see it. It's <laughs> the cover of RL Stein's seminal goosebumps work, Say Cheese and Die. <laughs> and it's just, thank just you. like thank <laughs> you for that. It's just of like a family well articulated skeletons. skeletons.
1: Just and that's chilling and
0: grilling, hate. having a picnic. Very 90s skeletons, too. I know. Look at those mom jeans on that those skeleton Those mom lady. jorts
1: are great. I would love a pair of those mom jorts. Also, Boy. I have that haircut. God. So. <laughs> so. Nothing like this has ever, has been found elsewhere in the Hebrides. And before this discovery, no one thought that mummification had even happened in prehistoric Britain. But then in 2015, Thomas Booth of the Natural History Museum in London, he did a little metaphorical digging. So he was interested. He's like, well, we found that. I wonder if these other, other remains that we found may have also been processed like this. And so he was interested in the damage to the bones caused by gut bacteria. So he looked at bacterial tunneling in the bones of over 300 British archaeological skeletons dating to various periods. Um, And so as expected, almost all bones from most periods were filled with bacterial tunnels. Okay. Great. Um, But around half of the samples that dated to the Bronze Age showed little or no sign of bacterial tunneling. Wow. So about half of what he looked at from the Bronze Age, someone had deliberately stopped uh, bacterial tunneling. So they had deliberately preserved the body. And so the Bronze Age skeletons, which bore this signature, came from sites located all over Britain, stretching from northwest Scotland, you know, Claude Holland, to southeast England, which is um, over in Kent. So it's happening all over. Yeah. This was the first evidence that mummification was practiced all over Bronze Age Britain. I Um, never knew about any of this. I know, right? So we've got mummies all over Britain in the Bronze Age, but were they all bog mummies, Anna? Probably not. No. So the Neat's Court skeleton, so Neat's Court, which is on the island of Shippey in Kent, which when I looked it up, all I found was a listing for a very attractively priced tract of land. If you're interested in making an investment with me,
0: um, uh, yes. <laughs> support us on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, Patreon.com we'll, slash we'll the Buy some land
1: in Neat's Court. Um, skeletons demonstrate macroscopic discoloration and fissuring. So, fissuring is like,
0: like little cracks. Yeah.
1: Yep. Like little, little cracks consistent with low level heat treatment. Or were they? Suggesting oh. that these bodies may have been mummified by desiccation through smoking. <laughs> in contrast, the Bradley Finn skeletons, which are elsewhere in Britain. <laughs> Again, Finn, so
0: it's a similar yeah,
1: yeah. type so, of so um they, Yeah, so they're on a fen, so it's a wetland area. So they mm-hmm. display no post-mortem um, alterations that are indicative of, of a particular method of mummification. But their provenance close to substantial wetlands does raise the possibility that they were preserved through initial deposition within watery, anoxic environments. So okay. we've got definitely mummified, like definitely dipped in a bog... Um and then God knows what happened to them up in Cloud Holland. We've got definitely smoked and then we've got possibly bog mummied. Um and so Fen
0: fen mummification is different from bog mummification. If I can just push up my um actually glasses for a second. So
1: well which which actually like further bolsters my point that they had a they had a goal and that goal was to keep dead people around. And people figured out, they, like, used what they had. They used whatever tools they had in their toolbox to keep dead people around. Yeah. Which,
0: that's, that's incredible. Is wild. It, it reminds me of, oh, gosh, I hope I don't misattribute this to the wrong place. But somewhere in Indonesia, I think, there is a group that um, they sort of every year they they pull out their ancestors, they, they unearth their ancestors, and, um, you know, sort of perfume them and dress them up and, and tell them about new family developments and sort of parade them around in a festival. And, and then they put them back.
1: Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Villagers from Tana Toraja. Yeah. Um, that sounds familiar. Yep. They are Indonesian. They live on Sulawesi.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: And, yeah, I just found, a, of course, a Vice article. Oh, Vice. Uh, but, though this looks really interesting. Um,
0: I wonder if it's sort of the same principle where it's sort of veneration of your relatives by keeping them right there. This fits in
1: and with whatever your understanding of life and death. And like consciousness is this is clearly part of their sort of cosmology, like their understanding of the world and how people fit in it. And so maybe keeping them physically with you is is a is a way to keep them spiritually, uh, spiritually or emotionally with you. It's really fascinating. And it's also extremely fascinating that up until 2001, nobody had the slightest idea that this would even happened.
0: Right. Wow. but there's
1: but there yeah, there's no getting around the fact that that is wild that they're just. I were love like,
0: that they replaced broken parts. Well,
1: well, yeah. Presumably, so, w- with the with the female, it seems that they were that it was just some intentional stitching together, but with the male, it's something that they were Happened replacement parts incidentally. Yeah. yeah, and so is this something that it's like what does that mean? I don't know. But that's my story about Claude Holland. Oh my goodness. Ah, that's all I got.
0: <laughs> You've spooked me. Do you want to be an archaeologist now? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yay. I
0: do. I got one. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> well, thanks for listening along with me to that. <laughs> it was nice to have some company. We have some big announcements to get to you. Ow. Which means air horns for Amber and lots of extra content for you, the listener.
1: Sorry, that was an accident.
0: (laughs) Accidental air horn. (laughs) Okay, so the first of these announcements is that we are participating in the Archaeological Institute of America's International Archaeology Day and bringing you a special episode. It's going to be, oops, all buried. And it's going to be all about the life history of an artifact, how it goes from being an object that someone's using and uh, what happens after it's discarded or uh, lost and what happens all the way up until an archaeologist finds it. And then even after that, how it gets curated and uh, how it gets interpreted. Stuff like that. So that's going to be really cool. We're excited to bring you that coming soon. We are also officially partnering with the American Anthropological Association as official podcast partners. So that means that we're included in their podcast library, which we will link to on the website and social media. So that's going to be awesome. We're going to be working with them and we're really excited to do that. Yeah. And we'll get to tell you about things that they're doing. And
1: then also if you go to their podcast library, you can see other podcasts. Yeah. If you like
0: us, there's going to be lots of other anthropology folks doing anthropology podcasts. Yeah. Check them out. And then one more thing on October eighteenth, I so Anna, in case you haven't, our first told our live apart, performance. Well, a performance is live a live appearance. Word. <laughs> um, I'm going to be at Cosumnes River College in Sacramento um, on October eighteenth from eleven thirty to one thirty. They're having an International Archaeology Day event with the Anthro department there, and I'm going to be there representing the dirt. So if you're in the area, come out. We'd love to meet you. And by we, I mean I, and I'll tell Amber all about you. Yeah, she will. Yeah, I really will. We talk a lot. So that's it for announcements. Um, please support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single time donor. Either way, we would be extremely grateful. You can do that at patreon.com the dirt podcast. Yeah.
1: And you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcast fix. You can follow us over on Facebook at the dirt podcast, on Twitter, we're at dirtpodcast. On Instagram, we're at the dirt pod, and we, our friendly, cozy home
0: on the web is the dirtpod.com. If you would like to send us an email about skeletons in your closet, no. you can do that at the at gmail.com.
1: We have neither attorney client privilege nor whatever the person that
0: confesses to a priest is called confessor privilege. confidentiality. Yeah, I mean, if you do that, it's on you. Oh, yeah, if you do More. that, we will definitely tell the authorities. We're a law-abiding podcast. (laughs) Yes, we are. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.